You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, Right now, though, it's time for us to uh, prepare our hearts for God's Word. What an amazing privilege, is it not, that you have a Bible in your hand, the Word of God. Think what God has done to preserve His Word over the eons, uh, over the ages. Uh, It's a miracle in itself, and we have the privilege of opening the Word of God. So let's open up to Genesis 16. We are journeying through the Bible verse by verse, and we are in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, The series is titled, In the Beginning, God, and we've watched God do incredible things thus far. Right now, we're looking at the life of Abraham, and uh, God making a covenant with him last week, uh, a powerful covenant, and uh, today, uh, we're shifting gears a little bit. Title of the message is, When Faith Falters. When faith falters. Uh, I am so glad that the Bible shows its heroes, warts and all, aren't you? And that even these godly pillars, uh, these men who walk with God, even they, uh, we see, stumble and fall. And sometimes our faith falters. I would love to tell you that as a pastor, I am always full of faith and that I never falter. But I would be lying, right? I mean, that is just nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Uh, I am full of faith, uh, but I also have a sin nature, and sometimes I stumble, and today we're going to see a godly man stumble, and we're going to see uh, a redeeming God and all that he does to pick us up and to bring us back and to pour his grace and mercy upon us so that when we stumble, we don't have to stay in that wretched state, but instead get right back on to the path that God has for us. And uh, that is why Jesus went to a cross, and that is why his grace and mercy flows freely, not so that we can sin, but so that we can be restored and get right back on track with what God has for us. And so we'll see that today in this chapter. Uh, Let's open up without further ado, uh, Genesis 16. Are you there? Did the ushers pass out Bibles? Yeah. Uh, Speedy. I didn't even get to see it. Uh, (laughs) Genesis 16, let's pick it up. Uh, If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Interesting verse. Yahweh has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. So Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. Uh, Interesting, right? I mean, uh, what a story. What a twist. What a plot twist. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And this happened after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. 
so here we see uh, 10 years in the land of Canaan. We know from our previous study that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran and went into Canaan. Into the, into the, Canaan is the promised land. The land that will one day, according to God's promise, be the nation Israel. Right now it's uh, inhabited by all the ites, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the, you know, termites, all of them. Uh, and one day it'll be God's land. It'll be the nation Israel. But right now, Abraham's dwelling there as a stranger. We know he was 75 years old when he left Haran to go to Canaan. And now it's been 10 years. We know that the covenant that God made with Abram happened before he was in Haran. So God has made this covenant more than 10 years ago. Sarai is now 76 years old. Abram now 86 years old. And still no children. 10 to 12 years into this covenant, still no children, right? And so uh, that's where we're at, verse 4. So he, that's Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Uh, let me ask you here, who is despising who? Let me hear from you. A lot of confusion. It's not Sarai despising Hagar. It says it's Hagar despising Sarai. And everybody's going, oh, I wish you could see your faces right now. Oh, uh, yeah. Sarah, uh, Hagar is despising Sarah. Look at this, verse 15. Then Sarai said, to, excuse me, verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. How does that work? <laughs> I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me, Abram. Abram, this is your fault we have this problem. And you can feel the tension in this family, can't you? Hagar's going, hey, problem isn't Abraham. The problem is you. You can't, you're, you know, and you would have had kids long, Abraham would have had kids long ago. And she is just gloating over Sarai. And she's giving her the eye as she walks by and and there's this tension in the house. And now Sarai's mad at who? Abraham. You say, hey, Abraham, it's all your fault, right? And there's some real dysfunction here, right? Verse 6. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she, that's Hagar, Fled from her presence. Sarai uh, says, oh yeah? Well, my husband says I'm going to do what I want. All right, well, I'm going to treat you bad. And she treats her so harshly that Hagar, this pregnant woman, runs away. We see some things here. Uh, right out of the gate, we see, again, uh, the very title of the message, Abraham and Sarai's faith faltered. They faltered. Uh, they had these promises. 
And it is strange here that they falter here because we just read last week in chapter 15, Abram, excuse me, God reconfirms his covenant with Abram. And there is not a big time span between chapter 15 and 16. It is immediate. It is quick. Uh, when we get into chapter 17, we're going to see a lot of years pass. But right here, between 15 and 16, very little time has passed. God has just reconfirmed this covenant with Abram. And we looked at it last week. It was a powerful re reconfirmation. God uh, appears to Abram. And Abram asks God the question. God reaffirms the covenant. Hey, I'm going to give you a homeland. You're going to be a great nation. Uh, there's going to be a multitude of people come out of you. Uh, it, the Messiah is going to come from you. All the earth will be blessed because of that Messiah coming from you. We looked at all of that last week. Abram asks God a question after God reaffirms this covenant and says, No, Abram, it's still going. It's still, I know it's been 10 years. The covenant still stands. Abram asked God a question. We looked at last week. Well, how, how will I know this is going to happen? What do I have to do? And God says, okay, uh, cut these animal pieces in half, right? And, and what was he doing? God was speaking to Abraham in words and language that he would clearly understand. He was meeting Abraham in his, in his own uh, way, like coming to Abraham where he is. You see, this was a common contract back in that day, the contract of a suzerain treaty. And they would cut these pieces, and they would divide them in two. And two kings would make an agreement, and they would say, hey, uh, I'll protect you, you protect me, we're in this together. And then they would walk through those cut pieces together. And it was a picture of a contract. If I break my end of the contract, this is what will happen to me. I'll be like a dead man. If you break your end of the contract, this is what will happen to you. You'll be a dead man. And they would walk through those pieces together. Abram totally understood what God was doing. The language he was using. God was speaking to him on his own language. And he says, cut these pieces. Abram does. And then Abram waits all day long, we read last week. And he waits, and after a full day, God appears. And God passes through these pieces alone. Abram doesn't pass through. The significance? This contract, this agreement, this covenant, Abram, it has nothing to do with your performance. It is all mine doing. Abram had asked the question, what do I have to do to make sure this is going to happen? God's answer? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. It's all on me. And this covenant with the nation Israel is still binding today. The Abrahamic covenant. The land is theirs. The promises are theirs. And everything God promised Israel will come to pass. It doesn't matter if Israel is obedient or disobedient. It'll come to pass. But what's astonishing is after God speaks to him in his own language in such a clear way. For Abraham, such a clear way. Only a few days later, Abram is staggering in unbelief. Abram is faltering in his faith. And it seems crazy as we look at it until, until, until what? Until you've been a Christian for any length of time at all. 
and you've been in church on Sunday, and you've been so inspired, and you've seen sang praises, Lord, you're all I need, you're all I ever wanted, and then on Monday, your life looks in totally different. What about the song you sang yesterday? What about our faith falters? And if you are a human, if you are honest, you know your faith falters. The Apostle Paul would write about this in Romans chapter 7. Oh, how I wish in, in my mind I delight in God's ways. But in everyday life, I find that there's this battle going on. And that what I want to do, that's not what I end up doing. And that what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this problem? And the answer is, he comes to the glorious conclusion, I thank Jesus Christ, who's able to save me and keep me through all of this. And here, Abram's faith falters, and it's crazy uh, uh, at this time. And, and what's even more astonishing is, is after God reconfirms this covenant with Abram, and he shows them the stars and the Messiah is going to come. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and God accounted to, that, to him for righteousness. And just shortly after that, he now falters in his faith. How does this happen? Well, it happens because Abraham and Sarai have the same sin nature that you and I have. And Abraham and Sarai seem like, oh, I don't know how this is going to happen. Maybe we need to help God out. Maybe we need to make sure this happens. I can tell you as a pastor, I face this temptation regularly. This is his church. But sometimes I start to take the burden on my own shoulders. And I have to take it back off and say, no, Lord, this is your church. Maybe as a parent, you face the same thing. Lord, these are your children. And Lord, I'm doing my best to raise them in them, but I have to trust you that they're yours. Abram and Sarah, they stumble because they have a sin nature. And now, here's the question. Why stumble now? Very unusual time. After God just reconfirms this covenant so powerfully. Abram sees God pass through as a burning flame. What an experience. Why now? Let me hear from you. Why now? Well, they're getting... Older, Abram 86, Sarah 76. Yeah, we're Abram and Sarah. God made a covenant with us. Really, what covenant did he make? We're going to be a great nation. You are. Well, how many kids do you have? None. Well, are you married? Yeah, we're married. Well, how long have you been married? 60 years. I don't know how long they were married. You've been married 60 years and you have no kids. Yeah. And God's going to make a great nation out of you. Yeah. Well, when did God tell you that? That's been about 12 years now. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, you could see, right? And what am I saying? Life has a way of wearing our faith down sometimes. Life has a way of kind of just making us go like, are you sure you believe God? Life has a way of grinding on us. Furthermore, let me really drive it home. At 76 years of age, Sarai living to 120-something, I can't remember, uh, Sarah might be going through, mm, 
And now going through. All the women are like, yeah, it's hot in here. And now going through menopause, she might be thinking, well, I guess I misunderstood God's promises. This is not speculation. Hebrews 11 clearly tells us that the time when they had Abraham, when the time when they had Isaac, that both of their bodies were as good as dead. And they're not talking about, uh, do you understand what they're talking about? <laughs> Abram was as good as dead. So was Sarah, okay? And in that state, God allowed them to conceive. Miraculous. All is doing. But know that life has a way of wearing on our faith. And here, maybe uh, uh, staggering in faith, she says, take my handmaid, Hagar. Question for you, where did they get Hagar? Where? Egypt. In Egypt. And why did they go to Egypt? Well, here we see something. Here we see something that it's important for all of us to hold on to. Here we see the compounding effects of sin. It would be bad enough if we sinned and that was the end of it. The problem is, it's not the end of it when we sin. When we sin, uh, there are compounding effects. You see, Abram and Sarai went into Egypt because they sinned, because they lacked faith, because they thought God wouldn't provide for them uh, here when there was a famine, and they went to Egypt for food, and it was disastrous. And God delivered them and brought them out of that messy, sinful step. But they come out with Hagar. And so uh, we see how sin is compounding. We see how it builds one sin upon another. Uh, going into Egypt led to getting Egyptian handmade. Getting an Egyptian handmade led to a girl being in Abraham's bed. And here we see, be wise, sin always begets more sin. Have you noticed? One lie turns into another lie. Uh, it's interesting. One drink turns into eight. <laughs> yes. And so uh, we need to be wise. Even seemingly innocuous things. Uh, uh, one steamy movie uh, turns into a lustful thought life. Uh, one morning without reading your Bible turns into one week without reading your Bible, turns into a routine of not reading your Bible. Uh, be careful. Uh, here we see the compounding effects of sin. It would be nice to say that, oh, when we went to, when we went to Egypt, uh, we messed up and now we're out and it didn't affect us. No, it affected us. It affected us in ways we never dreamed. It affected us with strings that we didn't even know we were tied to. And so is sin in our life. And Jesus made that very clear. Jesus, uh, wanting to warn us about this, John 8, 34, uh, a passage you probably know well. Let me hear you read this in a unified thundering voice. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a, is a what? Slave, Slave of sin. 
Paul would take this teaching in Romans chapter 6 and build a whole entire chapter off it. Do you not know that whatever you choose to obey will become your master? Do you want to be mastered by Jesus or do you want to be mastered by sin? A good chapter worth reading. But notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, most assuredly, when Jesus says most assuredly, what is he telling us? Pay extra careful attention to this. This is true for every person, 100% of the time, no exceptions. Know this, if you sin, you'll be a slave of sin. And sin is a cruel master. It'll take us farther than we ever wanted to go, and it will always bring us into bondage. Jesus, on the other hand, always brings us into freedom. Jesus would go on in this verse. He says, hey, do you not know that uh, uh, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin? But then he says something very gracious. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And if you are in me, if anyone is in Christ, he is free indeed. He's a son, right? Uh, you can be taken out of the bondage of sin and out of the bond of the slavery of sin and be brought into the glorious liberty of the children of life, uh, children of Christ. And so may we be wise and owe oh, the pain that Abraham and Sarah will face in their marriage because of this. And I want you to remember, it all started in Egypt. All started in Egypt. Now, I want to take a little uh, uh, sidebar here uh, because we see a little dysfunction in their marriage, do we not? And uh, that dysfunction that is in their marriage is common to all marriages because we are no different than they. We're all made out of the same stuff. We're all brothers and sisters, right? Uh, Abram and Sarah are no, no different than us. And so let's do a little marriage tune-up, should we? Uh, I want to look at some things here that we have just seen in them. Uh, there are three common dysfunctions in marriage that we see here in this story. The first one is simply this, emotional decision-making. Emotional decision-making. Uh, common mistake that we make, and this is what Sarah is doing. Uh, emotional decision -making. hey I got an idea uh, maybe we can do this and we can have a kid this way man that sounds like yeah let's do that yeah and it's all on emotion emotion and I want you to know emotions are great I love emotions. God gave us emotions, and they do wondrous things in our life. They bring joy into our life. They bring uh, uh, discernment, like, hey, pay attention. Be, be. They bring caution. They bring happiness. They bring a lot of different things. But I want you to know something. You've heard me say this often. Emotions are wonderful passengers but they are horrible drivers. God gave us emotions to be a passenger in our life. God did not give us emotions to be a driver in our life. And one of the common dysfunctions in marriage is we make emotional decisions. Instead of making emotional decisions, we're, met, we're, we're called to make wise decisions that are rooted and grounded, not in emotion, but in the word of God. All right, I got an idea. Great, let's bring it to the word of God. What does God's word say about this? Let's get some godly counsel on this. 
And we want to make decisions based on the word of God, not based on emotion. Making emotional decisions is dangerous. Have you ever made a decision in your life and you look back on it and you go, what in the world was I thinking when I did that? You ever done that? Am I the only one? What in the world was I thinking when I did that? Can I tell you something? You probably weren't. You probably weren't thinking that is. You were probably making what? An emotional decision. Uh, Write this down for me. Excitement. Write it down. Gosh, cry out loud. (laughs) Excitement. Write this down. Anxiety. Literally, write it down. Excitement. Anxiety. Write this down. Last one. Fear. Excitement, anxiety, fear. All of these are emotions. All of them are good, but they're not good to make decisions with. Make a decision on an excitement, and you know what will happen? It can cause us to overestimate our chances of success and not appraise it properly. Oh, I'm so excited. This is going to be amazing. Oh, if you make a financial investment on excitement, you are bankrupt. (laughs) It's just a matter of time, right? Uh, Go buy a stock on excitement. No, you buy a stock on what? Research, research, right? Uh, And so dangerous. Uh, uh, Excitement can cause us to overestimate our chances of success. Anxiety, Uh, make a decision on anxiety. You know what anxiety will do? Anxiety will cause us to respond too hastily. Just because we're anxious. Oh, I gotta do something. So I cut my head off. Why did you do that, right? I mean, that, well, I was anxious. I was anxious. Uh, Again, emotions are great passengers, horrible drivers. On the flip side of the coin, be Uh, make a decision based on fear and guess what you will never do? Anything. Because fear will paralyze you. And so these emotions are uh, uh, dangerous to be what's leading us to make our decision. All three of them hazardous to make decisions. Avoid making emotional decisions. I'll say it again just to get it written on our hearts. Emotions are great what? passengers they're horrible what drivers may we be wise and a common mistake in marriage a common dysfunction in marriage is making emotional decisions the second common mistake that we see in marriage from this lovely couple is the blame game the blame game sarai takes talks uh, sarai take <laughs> sarai talks abram into taking hagar as her handmaid as his wife and, and getting her pregnant as a little surrogate mom. And then she blames him when it, go, when it goes wrong. Hagar despises her, starts mocking her, tension in the house. You know, they're walking by each other and like Hagar's rolling her eyes, you know, like some woman you are, you know, and Sarah's like, you know, and, and the house is in tension. And what does Sarai do? 
my wrong be upon you. This is your fault, Abraham. Why did you do this? And here's something that's interesting to look at. Our flesh loves to blame others. Our flesh loves to blame others. You don't ever have to tell anybody. Uh, you raise kids and you're like, why did you do that? Well, she did this or he did this. It's, just, it's natural at two years old, right? Uh, our flesh loves to blame others. I want your wheels turning now. I want you to think about this. Why might that be? Why do we love blaming others? Why? I want to hear from you. Why? Pride? What about pride? Uh, pride is almost the right answer for anything about sin. It's kind of like Sunday school and kids, right? <laughs> Any question? Jesus, right? Like, yeah. On the flip side, pride. Yeah, anything is bad. Pride, yeah, absolutely. Why? Why? What are we saying in that? Let's go deeper. Let's actually think about this. Why do we like to blame others? Why? Makes us feel better about ourselves. We're getting closer. How does it make us feel better about ourselves? What are we looking for? Let me tell you something, church family. Know this for sure. One of man's greatest needs, probably second only to love, one of man's greatest needs is to be justified. To be justified. To dissipate this guilt that is upon us and to be made right. Let me tell you, there is only one who can do it. And when you blame others, it is idolatry. It is a false gospel. You are doing something to try to make yourself feel better. It will never work. It will never build you. It will never build your family. It will never edify anyone. It will always be bring destruction. And know that at the core of it, deep down, it's because your biggest desire is to be justified and bring your problem to Jesus and he will justify you. And it will be so much better than you blaming someone else. It is far better. The Bible is crystal clear. It is far better to take ownership of our problems than to blame others for our problems. And in society today, we are seeing something just running rampant. There is a cancer. There is a plague. There is a tremendous sickness. It makes COVID look like child's play. Do you know what it is? It is victim mentality. It is victim mentality. Not my fault. It's this. Do you know what CRT is in your child, children's classrooms? Do you know what it is? It is victim mentality. It's not your fault your, your life is worthless. You deserve everything for free by doing nothing. You're a victim. We are perpetuating homelessness because we keep handing out paychecks and phones for doing nothing because you're a victim. And if you are sexually aberrant, it's not your fault and we want to open every door for you because you are a victim. 
And this victim mentality runs across the board and it is going to ruin our society. I want you to know God is very clear. Yes, the world is not fair. Yes, all of us face hardship. Yes, a lot of it we don't deserve. Yes, Sarai, you didn't do anything wrong to be barren. Uh, you're not barren because God's punishing you. You're not barren because you were a bad, bad little girl. You're not barren because you're a bad wife. You're not, you're, it, life's just hard. Life's just hard. And all of us face hardship. I mean, why can't I be built like JC? <laughs> that ain't fair. Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen? Hey, you are not a victim. We've been made more than conquerors. Overcomers of this life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very clear. You can blame someone else, but that won't go very far with God. Adam, what happened? Well, the woman you gave me, uh, that's not going to go very far with me. It ain't the woman I gave you. This was your responsibility. And here's what God says over and over and over. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. But if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. And we're not walking with God. For Sarai to say, Abram, this is your fault. Who is she deceiving? Herself. In Isaiah. Oh, well, let me just ask you. Will God forgive all sin? Are you sure? He will forgive the sin that we confess that we repent of that we acknowledge if we don't acknowledge our sin it will not be forgiven that's why we come to Jesus right uh, in Isaiah God makes this clear all the way through the Bible in Isaiah chapter 1 God would say to a nation that was going astray to a nation that had left the true and living God and made religion a joke uh, to that nation God would say come 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 to me and let us reason together. And even though your sin be as what? Scarlet. Loose paraphrase. Even though you have blood on your hands. I will make you white as snow. I'll cleanse you. Come. Right? And so uh, far better. Uh, we need justification. But Jesus is the justifier. And we want to bring our, our, our faults and our problems to him. Uh, do not embrace this victim mentality. It is a major, major problem. And so we see some common dysfunctions in, in marriage. Uh, the, uh, the emotional decision making. The blame game. Uh, by the way, isn't it interesting how... Uh, uh, she blames him, right? Like, uh, uh, just crazy. Uh, but here we see this third one also, uh, this lack of male spiritual leadership. Why male sp spiritual leadership? Why not? Here's why. Because that's how God designed it. Don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. God designed it. 
in the Garden of Eden, God designed it. It has never changed. It never will change. And there is a major problem, a common problem in marriages today, a lack of male spiritual leadership. Let me ask you, who took the lead in this decision, in this idea? Hey, I got an idea. Sleep with Hagar. Who took the lead in that story? Sarai. Uh, who was the follower in that story? Abram. Why was that? And the results were damaging to their marriage, to their life, and to, may I say, the entire world today that if time allows, we're going to get into. To the entire world Men, your role as spiritual leader is significant, not just for your own little life, but also for your marriage, not just for your marriage, but for your entire family, not just for your family, but for your entire church, and not just for your church, but for the entire nation. And there is a lack of male spiritual leadership that is staggering in this world today. And I want you to know it is vital for the health of family, church, and nation. Men, God has called us to step up and lead in marriage. Uh, we had a really cool experience. There was a family in the church, uh, family with children, and there was a problem in this family. And uh, I was aware of it. We were talking. We were praying. And... <clears throat> Uh, some time goes by, and I hear this, uh, this wife, I hear this woman, uh, a week or two later, uh, I, I'm passing by in the hall, and I hear her telling her friend, as they, they were asking about it, and she said, my husband stepped up regarding this thing in this family. Her words, verbatim, my husband stepped up. And when she said that, do you know what she said that with? Eyes of adoration. Eyes of respect. You see, it just works naturally. Men, when we lead well, here's what happens. Our wives respect us. And that's what we need, right? And this is God's design. This is the way he meant it to be. Uh, uh, from the beginning, from the beginning, uh, uh, we know this passage, we know it well, uh, but it's worth looking at and looking at often, so let's do it again, Ephesians 5, 23. Uh, let me hear you read this, church. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. The husband is head of the wife, that means the, the, the leader, the responsible party. Uh, it's, 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 it's his job in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. So there's no commentary needed. We know that Christ is the authority, the king, the ruler, the, 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 the one who takes responsibility for the church. And he's the savior of the body. We see the role then of the authority. It's to build those that you're leading. It's to serve those that you're leading. Let's go on. Rest of the verse. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Uh, don't be a, a contrary wife going, oh, well, what'd you do that for? What'd you do that for? What'd you do that for? No, 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 no. Support your husband and his leadership is what that's saying. Let's go on. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for. Yeah, we see the leadership is not a domineering, self-serving love. No, it's a sacrificial, others-building, 
always looking to build up and to strengthen those that you're leading. Husbands, as a spiritual leader, you want to be in very, very much aware uh, of what God is doing in your family's life. Let me just ask you right now, husband, do you know what God is trying to do in your wife's life right now? If it doesn't come to your tongue immediately, you do not know. And the reason you don't know is because you haven't been thinking about it and praying on it. How are you going to lead if you don't know the very thing that God's trying to do in your wife's life right now? My job isn't to, to control what God's trying to do in my wife's life or to decide for myself. My job is to know what God is trying to build in my wife and then to embrace that work and to get involved in what he's doing. We have to know. I can't lead unless I know where I'm going, right? Uh, how about your children? Do you know what God's trying to do in your son's life, in your daughter's life? For every single one of my kids, even though they're grown adults, I still know what God's trying to do in each one of their lives. And I focus on it. And I pray on it. And I try to help them get there. Sometimes I stay on the same subject for a week. Sometimes I stay on the same subject for two years, right? But I know what God's trying to do in my kids' lives. I'm not elevating myself. I'm saying this is the role of every man as a spiritual leader in his family. Uh, Abram should have said to Sarai, Sarai, I know you have this emotion and I know you have this felt need and I know that it's real, but hey, God has promised us that you're going to have a son. Keep the faith. Don't waver. Don't turn to the right, to the left. But Abram got weary. Abram got lazy and he did not lead Sarai. And what's fascinating is even after everything blows up, and she blames him, Abram still refuses to lead. Take a look at verse 5 again one more time. <clears throat> then he, oh, I'm sorry, wrong chapter. Uh, verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abraham, my wrong be upon you. Abraham, this is your fault. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. Abram, this is on you. This is your fault. Look what Abram says. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. Whatever you want, honey. Well, whatever you want. What do you want to do? Okay, whatever you want to do. Lame, lame. Look how good this works. Look how good this works. And Sarai deals harshly with her. Oh, that's good. And now she flees from her presence and runs away. The girl that's carrying your baby. Horrible leadership. Abdicating the leadership. Here's the next question. Why did Abram abdicate his role as spiritual leader over Sarai? And just are there are three common dis dysfunctions in marriage, there are also three common dysfunctions in men when it comes to spiritual leadership. Number one, here's why he did it. It was the easy path. It was the easier path. Abram gave in to the pressure. Sarai was probably crying frequently about not having a baby. Every time they would go to Starbucks and there'd be a pregnant mom there or a mom carrying a newborn, Sarah would come home with a cup of coffee and a puddle of tears. And I understand that. And for those of you who are, are in this spot this morning, uh, uh, we're going to see. Uh, God hears. God cares, right? We're going to see. Uh, we're not there yet, so hang on. Uh, 
but uh, Abram gave he, he he took the easy path to this this problem, right? He got tired, he got weary. And I want you to know, men, good leaders must stand firm against tremendous pressure and adversity. It's not easy being a good leader. And you have to do things that are hard. And we need men who are hard. I am tired of floppy, flimsy men (laughs) who will not stand for anything. Stand. Stand against the tide. But I want to be liked. I want to be popular. Well, let me ask you. You can go that route. It's the easy path. But when you look at the end of this thing, how well is it going? How is, is Sarah happy? Is Abram happy? Is Hagar happy? Right? No. You're not liked. You want to be liked? Show up. And you'll hear your wife talking about you to others when you walk by the hallway. My husband showed up. Wow, love that, love that. Uh, he took the easy path. I want, you, I want to remind you something. The path of no resistance leads straight to hell. Do you hear me? The path of no resistance leads straight to hell. Jesus said it this way, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Just, just go with a flow. But if you want to, you got to stand, right? Right? Uh, any dead fish can float downstream and stand firm, men, and lead well. For time's sake, I need to move us on. Uh, the second reason that he gave, abdicated his role as a spiritual leader, it appealed to his fleshly desires. It just appealed to his flesh. I don't know if Abram was attracted to young Hagar or not. I do know this. It wouldn't be uncommon if he was. And they picked up this young girl, and now it just appeals to his fleshly desires. Men, I want to remind you, you are the spiritual leaders in your homes. And it makes a difference in your church and in your nation. And therefore, you are a target of the enemy. Don't believe me? Just look at every commercial on TV. They will make the man look like the bumbling idiot who doesn't know which way to put the dishes in the dishwasher until his wife comes along and tells him, They go this way, stupid. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen those commercials or not? Do you think I'm crazy? Uh, even on the action, even on all the action figures now, we're all, anyway, I need to stop. Move us on. Uh, guard yourself. It's not only adultery that will cause a man to fall from leadership. It is also greed. It is also materialism. It is also lying and cheating and doing a shaky business transaction and pride and living for vacations and pleasure and entertainment and going surfing and what you're going to do when you get instead of building the kingdom of God. uh, Be careful. Be careful. Guard yourself. Uh, there is this idea that has swept into Christianity in the world, in the nation today. I don't mean the church here as the mission church per se alone, but the church global. It's definitely swept in, and uh, may we be mindful of it. Tozer said it very well. I read this quote on Tozer this week. Let me hear you read this as a unified voice. A whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. 
Nothing could be further from the truth. You want to be used by God? You've got to learn how to deny your flesh. You want to experience God's power in your life? You've got to learn how to not live according to the flesh. And God will move powerfully in your life. Uh, this, uh, uh, this idea that you can just go do what you want and still be a spiritual leader is bogus. Bogus. You've got to deny your flesh to be an effective spiritual leader. The third thing that I want to bring to our attention is uh, uh, that Abram compromised the integrity of God's word. He compromised the integrity of God's word. Why did he abdicate his role as a spiritual leader? He compromised the integrity of God's word. Did you see it? Did you notice it? It was subtle, by the way. Compromising the integrity of God's word always begins, what? Subtle. Has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree? In the church, the compromise of God's word always begins, say it with me. Subtle. Be wise. Be wise. Did you see the compromise in this passage? Let me illustrate it for you. The practice of having relations with another woman to be a surrogate mother was a common practice in that day. It was regularly practiced in the land of the Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham was taken out of. God wants to take us out of the world and come into his land where we walk in his ways, not in the ways of the world. Abraham, he leaves the literal obedience of God's word and he now moves to a figurative obedience of God's word. You are going to have a son. Well, maybe God didn't mean literally. Maybe God meant through Hagar. No, God meant what? Literally. And what happens is that the church begins to depart from taking the word of God literally and we take it allegorically, we take it philosophically, we take it whatever. Uh, it's meant to be taken literally. And Abram now compromises the integrity of God's word who said, out of your own flesh, out of your own seed, I will bring this son and I will bring the Messiah. And Abraham departs from that. Be careful. Know this. Uh, Abraham brought his culture into the Bible. Bogus. We must not change the Bible to fit our culture. We must change our culture to fit the Bible. Do you understand? Big difference. Don't let culture decide your idea of marriage. Don't let culture decide your idea of sexuality. Don't let culture decide your idea of godliness. Don't let culture decide your idea of sin. Let the Bible decide these things. And if we do that, we will be spiritual leaders and the Bible will change culture instead of culture changing the Bible. I read something astonishing this week, the latest Gallup poll. Do you realize that in 2011, merely 10 years ago, 11 years ago, in 2011, 50% of the nation believed that the Bible was the inspired, infallible word of God. 50% of the nation. In the latest Gallup poll, only 10 years later, guess what that number is down to? 20%. Godliness exalts a nation, and it can happen quickly. 
and sin destroys a nation and it can happen quickly. Abram went from a literal interpretation of God's word to a figurative interpretation of God's word and it brought disaster and it always does. To be effective spiritual leaders, we must seek to uphold and obey God's word. Uh, uh, now, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, I need to wrap us up. Uh, let me see if I can do this. Uh, Abram and, and Sarah, uh, their sin has made a mess of things. Abram abdicated his, his, his spiritual leadership and now... Life's a mess. Family's a mess. Everything's a mess. Sarai's miserable. Their marriage is miserable. Hagar is miserable, pregnant and homeless. Abram is miserable, juggling all these problems. Knowing he's got a kid out there that he's not going to see. Broken hearted, trying to please the wife. Nothing's working. And here God comes along in his grace and begins to put them back together. God is so good. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her, that's Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness. By the spring that is on the way to Shur. And he, that's the angel of the Lord, said to Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, where have you come from and where are you going? Interesting question. Angel of the Lord? Uh, first mention in the Bible of angel of the Lord. Angel means messenger in Hebrew and in Greek. This is a messenger of Yahweh. We're going to see in just a moment who is this messenger of Yahweh. Could it be just an angel? Well, it could be on first read, but we're going to see in just a little bit, he speaks first person as God. And here, the angel of the Lord finds her by the spring of water, and God himself asks her a question, and notice the question. Pay attention. Where have you come from, and where are you going? Let me ask, does God not know? When God asks a question, it is never for his sake. It is always for our sake. Dave, why did you talk to your wife that way? It's not like he needs to know why I did, right? That's for me to meditate on. Hagar, where have you come from? Well, I've come from a place of pride. I've come from a place of arrogance. And I've come from a place of despising the woman who was an authority over me. That's where I've come from. Where are you going? What are you going to do with this now that you realize where you've come from? I find it so amazing that God can speak to us so small, so concise. And yet so powerfully. Uh, what are you going to do knowing that where you are now? And look what he says. Uh, where you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. In other words, I'm going nowhere. I'm going, I don't have a plan. I made a decision on emotion. I got mad and I ran. Uh, notice this, by the way. Arrogance, pride, pride 
and disrespect of the authority that's over you will always lead you to a path going nowhere. Always. And look what God says. Look how God restores. Verse 9. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress. Paraphrase, repent. Return to your mistress. And submit yourself under her hand or under her leadership. Paraphrase, humble yourself and serve her. Repent, humble yourself and serve her. And look at this. Verse 10, and the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly and they shall not be counted for a multitude. Repent, humble yourself, serve her, and walk in the fullness of God's blessings upon your life. This is who God is. This is what he does. These are his promises and they are always true. And the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11, God's amazing grace, by the way, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Ishmael means God hears. Everybody say God hears. hears. Call his name God hears. What's he telling her? I've heard you. I know what you've gone through. I know you were sold as property from Egypt. I know you were just a servant in a house. I know what what's, you've been going. I've heard. Uh, his name shall be Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. I'm going to skip verse 12 and come back to it at another time. Verse 13. Verse 12 super powerful. I just, I, I preach too long is my problem. Uh, verse 13. And she called, the na- she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. Wow. Write yourself a little note in your Bible after that verse. This is God's desire. This is God's desire. What does she say? She says, God has heard me. God has seen me. He knows everything about me. And now I have seen the one who sees me. I know the one who knows me. I hear the one that hears me. And this is God's desire. He takes this woman who is in total sin. First mention of the angel of the Lord. It is God in the first person. And he appears to who? A woman? A slave girl? Oh, the incredible grace of God. He is no respecter of persons. Job would say he treats kings and the poor the same way. And he comes with total grace. And he comes for the purpose of being known by her. Wow. 
This angel of the Lord, I believe, is Jesus in the Old Testament. And it looks exactly like Jesus in the New Testament. John chapter 4, Jesus going to Galilee. He says, guys, I'm going to take a detour. I'm going to go through Samaria. Samaria? We never go to Samaria. We don't even like those people. Jesus, I got to go through Samaria. He goes to Samaria. He goes to a well. He waits till noon in the middle of the day for this woman of ill repute to come out to the well. John chapter 4. She's coming out in the heat of the day to draw water. Why in the heat of the day? Women draw water in the morning when it's cool. Here's why. She's got a bad reputation and she's tired of being harassed from all the women in the, in the world. And so she goes to the well when no one's there. There's someone there. The God who sees. The God who hears. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was standing here with you, if you knew that I was the creator, you would ask me. I would give you living water, eternal life, flowing up, satisfying the soul, satiating the soul, overflowing in abundance that you had enough to then pour out and give to others and use your life to be a builder of the kingdom. If you knew the gift of God and who it was who was standing here with you, you would ask, I would give eternal life, living water. She's a sinner. She's lost. She's spiritually dead. She doesn't understand. Oh, that'd be nice. Give me some of this water. You drink this water, you're going to thirst again. You drink what I give you, you will never thirst again. Oh, that'd be nice. She's still not getting it. Jesus says, go and call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Probably says it, batting her eyes, little flirt, flirt, uh, flirting, flirtatious. I've been out of the game for a long time. Uh, flirt, flirtatious. Uh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you say, right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. You've given up on marriage, and now you're just shacking up with men. You've become cynical and hard. And the woman's eyes are opened. And she says, oh, I perceive you are a prophet. Getting close. And her life is transformed. And she goes into the town and she says, come and see a man who knew everything about me. Come and see a man who told me everything about who I am. Uh, notice this, by the way, for you Bible scholars. Married five times. The man she's with now, she's not just shacking up. Six men, none of them have been a husband to her. Six, the number of imperfection. Six men, none of them have loved her. None of them have been a husband to her. The seventh man, the God-man, the husband of, that loves her properly, the only husband that will ever love you properly, there before her, saying, if you only knew all that I have for you. And she goes into town with the exact same words that Hagar says here, the God who hears me, the God who sees me. If you are down and out this morning, if you are cast down, if you think, man, nobody knows what I'm going through, if you are broken, if you are hurting, I want you to know God sees, God hears, God cares. The last point I want to leave you with is this. You have a God who knows you and cares about you so intimately that if you only knew the plans that he had for you, you would drop everything that you're holding on so, so tightly to like a hot rock and run 
into his embrace. Uh, may we be wise. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.